Well, good morning. You'll find the insert inside your uh, bulletin. Be careful, this insert is double-sided. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And our study this morning, we're taking a pause from our study of Luke. We're 65 weeks into Luke, and we've been averaging like nine verses a week. We're moving. We're moving. It's just a long book. It, it is. But topics of God's sovereignty, topics of God's sovereignty, in particular over salvation, have come up in Luke again and again. And it seems good to me, it seemed good to the elders, and in our discussions in the ABF time, it seemed good to you all to pause and actually look at this. So consequently, this morning's message is going to be part one of a four-week series on election and predestination. The Bible's teaching on that. And it's, it's a heavy topic. It's one of the reasons why it can't be done in simply one week. And this morning in particular, you'll notice there's a PowerPoint. I will be pointing with power. Um, at least attempting to. And one of the reasons for that is this. Um, there are a lot of texts we're going to be looking at this morning. And I want you to see them. And they're going to be printed on the screen behind me. The, the notes, um, all the texts we're looking at are in your notes, except for one that I added this morning. And I'll, make, I'll point that one out. I'll also be making this PowerPoint available. It'll be on our sermon archive. You can go through that again. We're going to be looking at some heavy stuff. And in, in a very real sense, you'll be drinking from a fire hose. Um, so just sit back, take it in, chew, think, pray, work through these things. To give you an idea of where we're going in our four weeks, this morning we'll be looking at the absolute sovereignty of God and real human responsibility and how that works. Next week, we'll look particularly at the uh, Bible's teaching on election predestination. Now, those are biblical terms. What do they mean? That's the $8 million question. Week three, Pastor Daniel will be dealing with misunderstandings, objections, and okay, how does this all work out? And then week four, the so what? How does this affect the Christian life? If so many people struggle with this, if this can be such a divisive topic, what is the value in studying it? How does it actually affect my life in real space and time? Additionally, I want to point and commend to your attention three books that we've added to the library and the bookstore that I think will be helpful. One is J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. One of the most common questions we get when teaching on the sovereignty of God in salvation is, if that's true, why evangelize? Well, J.I. Packer has written a very helpful book. A number of years ago, the entire elder board read and worked through this. That's available in the library and the bookstore. Also, R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. Very helpful, very readable, very enjoyable. And if you want something heavier, especially as it relates to this morning's message, um, I can't recommend a better book than Scott Christensen's what about free will? All these are available in the bookstore and in the library. Additionally, final thing I'll recommend is this. For those of you who've gone through our, our Tough Men classes, I've taught this material before. In fact, what I'm largely teaching this morning is an adaptation of Wayne Grudem's, from his Systematic Theology, Chapter 16 on Providence. If you have a copy of Grudem, you can go and read that as well, and you'll see just how much I've lifted from him. But that said, let's head on in. Now, the point I want to make this morning is two. I want to assist the Bible insists that both of the following statements are true. Okay? That's for the entire goal of our time this morning is, is to back up this claim. First, that, and we're not clicking. Ah, there we go. 
God is absolutely sovereign. And for those of you like filling in the blanks, they're all going to be bold and underlined. So if you miss them, you can't blame me. Frequently you can blame me, but not this morning. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Not some things, not a lot of things, all things. Yet, this never removes human freedom or responsibility. Second point. We are morally responsible creatures who freely make choices which have real consequence, yet this never conflicts with God's sovereign control over all things. Now, that's, that's in simplicity what I'm going to be arguing this morning. And the reason why I want to make the point like this is I think we intuitively, naturally, and I think understandably, assume either God is in control or we are. Either God is deciding things or we are. And that, that assumption I don't think is biblical. And if we walk into the study of election and predestination with that assumption, we are going to start arguing things like, so then, we're all robots or we're puppets. Because the second we see God making strong claims on his control, if we don't look at this point this morning, we will knee-jerk respond with, then our choices are meaningless. But the Bible insists both of these things are true. The Bible insists both that God is absolutely sovereign and that we make free, unconstrained choices that have moral reality to them, that have effect and consequence. So that's what I want to establish, as much as it's counterintuitive. And I'm not, I'm not pretending that I understand how this works. That's not the point this morning. There's a mystery here, to be sure. It goes beyond our understanding. But rather, I'm going to be arguing that the Bible declares this is the way things are. This is the way things are. And before we dive in, it's important for us to hear a warning from God himself. The danger of coming to God and assuming that he is like us. In Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And to this point, John Piper helpfully observes, we must simply listen to God when it comes to the sovereignty of God. We must have God tell us what it means for him to be sovereign, lest we import limitations or possibilities into God that he doesn't find in himself. And by the way, for clarity, Scripture is going to be white. My thoughts, other people's thoughts, yellow. So as we move forward, that's the color coding. So we've got to let God tell us what it means for him to be sovereign and not come at it, well, I think it's this way. We've got to sit and be obedient to God's word. What does God say? I think you'll see God has a lot to say. So as we develop this point of these two truths, we're looking at two points. First is this, that God continuously upholds and sustains all of his creation. I don't expect this to be terribly controversial, but I think it's a necessary first step. Unlike a deist's understanding of God, where God is the clockmaker and he makes this elaborate machine, and then God stands off and he watches his machine run, maybe occasionally tampering, maybe occasionally entering in when there is a miracle, the scriptures paint a different story. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God created the universe by his word. God upholds the universe by his word. In Colossians 1, 16 to 17, for by him, this is Jesus again, all things were created in heaven 
and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Jesus. All things are made by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. And what this means then is that not only was God active in the creation of the world, but also that God is active now, and he's close and at hand. In fact, this is the basis. God's providence provides a basis for science because God has made and continues to sustain a universe that acts in predictable ways. That's the basis of science, that God God made it and he upholds it. So water keeps acting like water and fire keeps acting like fire and air keeps acting like air. Consequently, we owe not just our creation, but also our continued existence to God. Do you ever stop and think about that? Why, Why are you and I still in existence? Why not just poof and disappear? Because God is upholding us by his word. God is upholding this pulpit by his word right now in this room. And that's chair in all of us. He is present and active. He's not in the pulpit, that's animism. But his word and his power is at work in this room, here and now with us. He is not far removed off and distant. He's at work now. Therefore, wherever we find ourselves, God is at hand, present, and actively sustaining his creation. Okay, so that's the first point. God made the universe, God upholds the universe, and God is at work right now here with us, keeping it together. Okay, the second point, and the much more complicated and potentially controversial one, and that's this. God cooperates with every created thing in every action so that they act as they do. God cooperates with every created thing in every created action so that they act as they do. Now, that sounds confusing, hopefully Look at a verse or two, try to explain what I mean by that. But first, I want to give you just two texts to sort of give you the overarching support for this. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. In the Greek, that's present active verb. God is working all things together the counsel of his will. It's not that he's turning them. He's at work in all things, causing them to fulfill his purpose. Or Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And I'm going to press all things hard to mean all things. All things are working together for good. That can only happen if God's in control of all things. Okay? So, What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is the following. The Bible then is able to speak of events as being both fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature. That's what what I think the Bible teaches. That's what I think we'll see. Um, If you do read some of these books, theologians call this concept concurrence. Philosophers call it compatibilism. You can forget that if you want. The important concept is this, that the Bible is able to speak repeatedly of events being both fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature. And I know there appears to be a mystery here. I would like to point out, this is a mystery that we see in other places. Who ask you, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. Did God write the book of Romans? Was it a collaborative effort, 50-50? No. In one sense, we can speak of God 
as the author of Romans. In another sense, we can speak of Paul as the author of Romans. Or another example, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, not 50-50. That sounds like 200%. Yeah, these mysteries like this appear over and over again. There's a mystery here, no doubt. But this is what we're arguing. The Bible can speak of God fully causing events and the creature fully causing events. What this means then is that it's incorrect to reason that if we know the natural cause of something in this world, that God did not cause it. Or, flip that around, it's incorrect to reason that if the Bible says God caused something, to then conclude, well, then we didn't do it, or we're just robots, or we're just puppets or something. And we're insisting that the Bible can speak of this dual causality. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this according to topics and zero in on the hard cases. So we'll start some of the easier places. God's control over inanimate creation. Psalm 135, verses 6 through 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, because he's sovereign. In heaven and on earth, and in the seas and all the deeps, it is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And if you've taken classes in college, you know that that pressure fields and moisture and heat are also explanations for weather. And it's not as though it's either or, it's both. So in Job, God can say he calls the lightnings and they come and he sends the, the thunderstorms and they go. And yet we know these natural explanations and what we're saying biblically is it's both. They're both accurate. Both accurate. Psalm 104, God takes credit not just for big things, but you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that they would bring forth good food from the earth. Well, I thought it's photosynthesis that makes grass grow. It is. God makes it grow, too. They're both accurate biblical ways of speaking about these things. Or even a bigger claim here, in Job 38.32, God is asking Job a series of rhetorical questions, demonstrating his power and his might, and he asks Job, can you lead forth a constellation in its season? and guide the bear with their satellites. And as you watch the stars move throughout the seasons, understand God says he leads them out and he moves them along. He is actively in control. The clock isn't running with him standing back watching it run. Rather, he's the one causing it to run. Inanimate creation. And there's a, there's a very, I love this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes, that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses, the creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche." So when we talk about God being sovereign over all things, we mean all things, the little things, the big things, the galactic things, all things. Or R.C. Sproul puts it this way. And think about the opposite. If, if there indeed is not God's sovereignty over all things, if there is one maverick molecule, just one molecule that God is not in control of, just one, running loose in the universe outside of the scope of God's sovereign authority, power and control, then no Christian has any reason whatsoever to put any faith in any trust in any future promise that God has made to his people. Think about that. 
If there is one molecule in the universe outside of God's control, how do we know that isn't the molecule that stops Jesus from coming back? Because after all, God's not in control of it. God can only make the promises he makes if he's in control. Not over the parts, but over the whole. Not over the parts, but over the whole. One maverick molecule could destroy the best laid plans, not of mice or of men, but of God. And if God is not sovereign, if God in some sense does not ordain everything that comes to pass, then God is not really sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. Okay, let's move on. Oh, I read the quote that wasn't on the screen. There it is. All right. Okay. So getting the hang of this power, pointing with power here. Animals. Okay. Psalm 104, 27 to 29. Speaking of animals, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. God, God feeds the animals. He takes credit for that. You give to them and they gather it up. You open your hand. They are satisfied with good. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit and they expire and return to their dust. Do you see how intimately involved God claims to be in the life of animals? Giving them breath, taking away, feeding them. Or Matthew 10, 29, Jesus speaking. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Because God's sovereign over the big things and the little things. God's sovereign over a bird falling dead in the woods. Or this is, this is one of my favorite statements. In Job, Job again, asked, God asking Job these rhetorical questions. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? God just took credit and claims that he is acting when the lion is hunting. I mean, after reading this passage, I have never watched the Nature Channel the same. No, it's amazing. Because you see the, the lioness on the prowl. And I think in some sense, God is at work hunting in that lion. That's what he says. Or does satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God? You're never going to listen to the birds chirping the same way again because God says they're crying to him. The birds are crying to God for help and wander about for lack of food. God's in control. God is sovereign over seemingly random or chance events. Listen to Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision from the Lord. And again, what we're arguing is not the either or, but the both. Because we know that lots and dice follow statistical probabilities, and there's inertia, and there's angular momentum, and there's friction, and all of those things in play, and we can calculate things absolutely. And God says every decision's from him. Because we're not buying the either or dichotomy. The natural explanation, the supernatural explanation, we're arguing the Bible lays forth it's both. Which leaves John Piper to say, Every roll of the dice in Las Vegas and every tiny bird that falls dead in the thousand forests, all of this is by God's command. I think that's what the Bible's saying. I think that's what God is taking credit for. Okay, let's move on to the affairs of nations. And again, we know this is biblical, this God speaks of his control, but I want to slow down and think through some of the implications. Job 12.23, he makes nations great, he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And you think back to the human history of all the nations that have ever been. And God says, I, I 
wipes them out, and I raise them up, and I establish them. Or Amos 3, 6, does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? And I can't help but think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or the Blitzkrieg in Poland, or a tsunami in Indonesia, or even closer to home 9-11. You start to unpack these statements and you realize the immensity of what it's claiming. Does calamity, does disaster come upon a city? The Lord has done it. The Lord did 9-11. That's what I think this means. And the terrorists did it. Absolutely. Because it's not either or. If calamity, disaster comes upon a city unless the Lord has done it. And then this is the verse I swapped out. You can write this referencing. It blows my mind. There's all these little hidden verses in the Bible about God's sovereignty that you gloss over. And, and Jerry Bridges helpfully pointed this one out. So if you remember, God commanded the Israelites three times a year to appear before him at the place he would choose. And in Exodus 34, he repeats this command and he gives them a, a promise. Three times a year, shall your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So I'd never stopped to think about that. Not only is there the economic problem involved in setting aside your work and making the long journey to Jerusalem, especially if you're way up north in Israel, three times a year, you've got to stop your work, you've got to shut down the shop, you've got to leave the fields be, and all the able-bodied men have to go down south to Jerusalem. But think of the national defense implications. Israel's surrounded by hostile enemies. The Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Hittites. And they, they got to know, they got to watch this pattern notice, hey, it's almost time for all of the able-bodied men to head south to Jerusalem. What a wonderful opportunity to go and grab their land. God doesn't just say he'll protect them from that happening. He makes a far more bold statement. It won't enter into their minds. They will not covet the land. I have no idea how he does that except that he's sovereign. But think about that. All these nations surrounding Israel, God's promising them, if you'll be faithful, if you'll obey me, not simply will I secure your borders and you won't lose your land. No one shall covet your land. The neighbors won't even... Think of it. Jerry, Jerry Bridges says this. As Israel's people abandoned all defense entirely three times a year, God says the surrounding peoples will be entirely devoid of even the logical desire to possess their land. As we think of nations, we can't help but think of the most striking example of God's sovereignty over the nations, and that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth in his day, the nation that was able to defeat Israel, and yet he has the audacity to take credit for it. And he's up on his walls and he says to himself, look at Babylon that I've built. And the Lord humbled him and he went and ate grass for a time. And then God uses this pagan king to write a chapter of the Bible. Daniel 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. I, I believe we'll see him in heaven. I believe he's a trophy of grace. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does what he wants. No one thwarts him, no one stops him, and he doesn't owe an accounting to anybody. That's what the most powerful man of the earth on his days learned. God does what he wants, and I don't get to say, hold up, explain yourself. Okay, moving on. Fairs of nations to all aspects of our lives. All aspects of our lives. Okay? We're zeroing in. We're going to get to even harder cases. And let me just pause before going any further and say this. There are godly men and women who have wrestled through these topics. I don't expect, as we zero in, for you to get all this in one morning. Um, it's part of the reason I want to make available all this stuff to you. Um, godly men and women wrestled through this topic through months and even years. That's good. But most people I know, their natural reaction is to avoid these topics, to avoid them like the plague, and just go to the happy verses. We're going to look at some of the harder verses where God is going to claim responsibility for things that frankly will shock you. And we mount these PR campaigns for God to deny, no, God has nothing to do with any of that, when God repeatedly, repeatedly says, yeah, I did did that. I'm God. So, So bear with me. We're moving forward. All aspects of our lives. Here we go. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's what Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And what a radical statement of control. And that's the basis for things like the beginning of Nehemiah, where the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus so that he issued a decree returning the Israelites. That can only happen if God's in control of all things, including Cyrus's plans. But probably the clearest one where we see both our responsibility and God's responsibility, where we see both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, is Philippians 2.13, where Paul commands his readers, he commands us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's, there's work to do. You and I need to get to work. It's a Greek verb energo. We get energy from it. It's active. We're doing stuff. We need to do it. Why? What's the reason why I need to get to work? You need to get to work. For God's at work in you, both to will and to work, according to his good pleasure, to which my natural logic thinks, well, if God is claiming he will work in me to produce the desire and the accomplishment of the desire by doing the work that I can just sit back and let go and let God, right? I can just let go and let God because God's going to work in me. God's going to produce the desire in me. God's going to bring it to fruition, right? Now, Paul says, no, that's exactly why I got to get to work. I get that that's counterintuitive. Get that. It's biblical. There it is. Divine sovereignty, human agency, both alongside Paul, not saying they cancel each other out, they complement each other. Get to work, working at your salvation, because God's at work in you to cause you to will and to do. Okay. Let's reiterate at this point that we do make real, free, unconstrained choices that really do cause things to happen. God works through the existing properties of his creation, not against or in spite of them. What I mean by that is this. God causes the rain to act like rain. He causes the grass to act like grass. He works with. There's no conflict here. 
That also means, as we'll see in a moment, that when God works through evil people, evil can be done. And we're going to see some challenging statements in God's word where he will take responsibility for things you will be surprised he takes responsibility for. God works through the existing properties of his creation, not against or in spite of them. In a way we do not fully understand, God sovereignly determines the very things we will freely choose. That's as, that's as simply as I can put it. And I get that that seems counterintuitive. I get that there's a mystery there. I'm not trying to explain the mystery, just trying to identify it. But there's simply no way that I can deal with some of these passages in the Bible without a theology sort of like this. And if God has given us and spoken these things, we don't do any favors to hide our head in the sand and ignore them. Okay, so let's move on to the toughest point yet. God's sovereignty over acts of moral evil. Okay, we've got to be really careful here. that We don't say heresy. We don't say too much or too little. So I'm going to offer some qualifications. One, while God himself never does anything evil, he does bring about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. We must never blame God for evil or think of God as ever taking direct pleasure in or from evil. What I mean by that is this. God is always, when he's using evil, looking at the big picture. The simplest explanation is the crucifixion, right? Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And in, in the big picture of human history, that is the crowning achievement of glory for the Son of God. It pleases the Father in its effect to all the rest of creation that that took place. And yet I would insist that God is angry at false accusation, that God is, is provoked by injustice and when the innocent are found guilty. So God can simultaneously hate the thing for itself, and yet how that thing plays into the bigger picture of the tapestry of God's plan, it can rejoice in it. So that's what we mean when we say God never takes direct pleasure in evil as evil. God uses all things to fill his purpose and even uses evil for his own glory and good. Now, I haven't backed that up yet. Give me a moment to try to do that now. I'll take some examples. First, over the sin of Joseph's brothers. Over the sin of Joseph's brothers. You remember that Joseph, his brothers became jealous of him because of the dreams that he had and told them about. And they threw him in a well and they faked his death and they sold him into slavery. And later, years later, Joseph um, runs into them in Egypt because they come down for food, and he reveals himself to them. And he says this. Now watch how Joseph both blames them and credits God. He said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Right? He lays the responsibility at their feet. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Or even more starkly and clearly, you want to see these two agencies side by side. Genesis 50-20. This is the point where Jacob has died, and, and Joseph's brothers are worried that, that Joseph only withheld his wrath because of dad was around. Now that dad's gone, that Joseph might possibly um, give them their comeuppance. And they come to him trembling and say, Remember, remember, our father made you promise. Joseph says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now notice the grammar. What it does not say is you meant evil against me, but God turned it for good. Which is I think what most of us tend to think. 
Satan, people do evil things, and God's really good. He, he responds really quickly, and he can, he can work that in ways that Satan or people didn't expect. That's not what it says. There's two meanings here, right? His brothers meant something, and God meant something. They meant evil, God meant good in the same event. So it doesn't let them off the hook that God had a purpose in this. It doesn't let them off the hook that God planned Joseph's being sold into slavery. And it doesn't give God blame. God's purposes are wonderful. He was saving life. He was preserving the entire region. In a passage like this, we see that both God's at work in an action and people are at work. Their moral culpability remains. God's praise remains. They don't mingle. And we just have to worship and say, okay, you're God. Okay. Genesis 50, 20. Let's move on. Next example. Over the sin of Pharaoh. In Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Now, I know that if you keep reading through Exodus, it will alternate and repeat, sometimes saying God hardened Pharaoh's heart, sometimes saying Pharaoh hardened his heart. And when you're reading that, you either have to conclude there's sort of this, this backwards and forwards, it's God's turn, it's Pharaoh's turn, or you conclude, we're really just looking at the same thing from different vantage points. Probably this is brought most clearly out in Exodus 8.5, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now wait a second, Lord, I thought you said you were going to harden his heart, and here it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, to which I think God says exactly. Just as God said, God said, I'm going to harden his heart. It says here, Pharaoh hardened his heart. That only makes sense if we're talking about one and the same thing. Divine agency, human agency, and God taking credit for things. And here, God's doing this intentionally. Pharaoh hardened his heart, just like I said he would when I said I'd harden his heart. Paul draws some conclusions from this example in Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. See, what's God's good purpose in hardening Pharaoh? How else is Rahab in the, in the line of David? How is Rahab going to hear about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, come to faith, be brought into the people of God, protect the spies, unless something this cataclysmic happens. And you can go read in Joshua, and that's exactly what Rahab says. We have heard what the Lord did in, Israel, in, in Egypt. And that report of this mighty show of God's power is what brings Rahab to faith. So what's God's good purpose? He's getting the word out of his power and glory so that people can be saved. And so Paul says, the scripture speaks of Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And here's Paul's conclusion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then Paul anticipates the, the, the question we're going to ask, which, by the way, tells me we're on the right track. He anticipates it. You will say, then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now again, keep in mind, Paul would never anticipate that question, that objection, unless we're largely understanding him rightly. The very fact that he anticipates this question means that whatever Paul's just taught would lead us to ask that question. Okay. At this point, a quote from Jonathan Edwards. 
The sovereignty of God is the stumbling block in which thousands fall and perish. And if we contend with God about his sovereignty, it will be to our eternal ruin. It is absolutely necessary that we should submit to God as an absolute sovereign and the sovereign of our souls as one who may have mercy on whom he will and he will have mercy and harden whom he will. Okay. And again, we're just dealing with God's claims. We're dealing with what the scripture says. It's hard. It's challenging. I know it's stretching understanding, but God has told us this for a reason. And part of it is that when I look at it, wrestle through it. Let's move on. Give you an even harder case. God is sovereign over the sin of David. If you remember, God had forbidden the kings of Israel from numbering their army. He did not want them taking confidence in the size of their army, but rather their confidence in God. And yet we read this challenging passage in 2 Samuel 24.1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, unless there's any mistake that what David does in numbering Israel and Judah is sin, we just jump ahead nine verses. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. It gets worse. There is a parallel account of this exact same event in Chronicles, and it reads nearly identically with one rather significant alteration. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, either you've got to wrestle with the passages like that and wrestle and pray and stretch, or you ignore them, or you conclude the Bible just contradicts itself. I would submit to you that while God himself, according to James, tempts no one, we learn here that it was not God himself who incited David, but Satan incites David. But yet God is in control of this in such a way that according to Second Samuel, he can say, I did that. I did that for my good purposes. I did that for my glory. I, I don't think there are many other ways to resolve this. Hard stuff, admittedly, but it's there. Okay, let's move on. God's sovereign over David's sin. God is sovereign over Satan. You know the story of Job, right? God and Satan are having a conversation in heaven, which right off the bat is very surprising to me, not what I would have expected God to be doing. But he does. And he points out Job to Satan. And Satan says to God, in effect, well, Job only is faithful and only worships you because you give him the goodies. You bless him, and who doesn't want blessings? But if I take away his family, if I take away his fortune, if I take away his, his wealth, he'll curse you. And so the text tells us explicitly that Satan went out, and Satan is the one who caused the house to collapse. And Satan, we know this. And Job, in his response, says something remarkable. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the narrator interrupts. Because I think the narrator is expecting us to go, no, no, Job, it wasn't God, it's Satan. You have it all wrong. The Lord gave, Satan took away. Because we've read the narrative, we know what happened. To which the narrator says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then round two begins. And Satan says, if you take away his health, flesh for flesh, then he'll curse you. 
and he gets struck with sores and he's miserable. And then his wife adds to it by saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Notice Satan left her alive. He kept the other, killed the other family members. He left Job's wife. I think we now know why. And Job, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And again, we want to say, no, Job, God gave the good stuff. Satan's the one who did the bad stuff. And the narrator says, no, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We've got to face these things. You go to the back last chapter of Job, <laughs> Job 42.11. Because remember, after God humbles Job and rebukes Job, he restores all of Job's fortune, and he gives him more children. And... We read this, the narrator speaking now. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's the narrator summing up what just happened in Job. And so the Bible can speak of Satan doing those things. It does. You read chapter 1, you read chapter 2, you, you see that. And it can speak of God saying, I, I did that. Differently, God did it for good purposes, for his glory. Satan does it for evil reasons, and he'll be judged for it. Because we're arguing the Bible doesn't accept the either or, but the both and. Let's move on. Not just Satan, but demons. First Kings 22-23, prophet speaking to the king. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Remember Saul, when he was first anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was a different man, he had a different heart, but then because of his twofold rejection of God, first he offers an unauthorized sacrifice, then he spares Agag and some of the Amalekites, and we read this terrifying statement. You know in Psalm 51 where David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? It's because David saw this. There we go. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And I know, I know the word for evil, ra'ah, can also be tra translated calamitous, tormenting. But still, this is, well, let's, let's look at an even better example. What, can you think of anyone more evil and greater power in evil than the sort of unholy trinity of the book of Revelation, the, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And you, you go to Revelation 17, and for a time, the beast and the, the prostitute, the great harlot, are in unison. Then they turn on her. And read, read, the, read the text of Revelation 17. This is just striking. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. Why? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose, by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Understand, the power struggle between God and demons and Satan is not a real power struggle. This is one of the most amazing declarations of God's control. Hey, I'm going to put it into your heart. Why don't you fulfill my word? Amazing. Why, why did these evil beings turn on, betray, devour? Because God put it in their heart. 
But all of this really pales in comparison with the single greatest evil deed ever committed, which is, of course, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Never was there a greater injustice, never was there a greater evil, a greater wrong done, never was someone so deserving glory and honor mistreated so. And the early church, as they began to think through these things and praise and pray God, you'll see, could speak in one sentence, in one paragraph, both establishing human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It's absolutely amazing. Acts chapter 2, 23. This Jesus, this is Peter's sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. He's laying the blame squarely at their feet, all the while insisting this only happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, I don't know how that works. I'm just saying the Bible insists it works. God planned this. God brought this to pass, and you did it. Or Acts chapter 4, 27 to 28. They're praying and praising God here. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the actions of Herod and Pilate and the Romans and Israel all those actions that took place and brought about the crucifixion of Jesus, they did nothing more or less than whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. You look at texts like this, and you either just worship, and, okay, I don't understand, you're God. Or you go, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. There's just too many of them. God is sovereign, and yet Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel chose to do what they did, and no one forced them to do it, and they're going to be held morally accountable. So let's, let's try to bring this up to a close and reiterate our point. So remember, I was trying to establish, I hope we've seen now biblically, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Absolutely over all things. Yet this never removes human freedom and responsibility. That's how Peter can say, you killed him. That's how Joseph can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And second, that we are morally responsible creatures who freely make choices which have real consequences, yet this never conflicts with God's sovereign control over all things. One more caveat here. We've got to take Paul's warning to heart that we never think to blame God for evil. We alone are morally responsible for our sin, for we willingly choose to do it. Passages like James 1, 13 to 14, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Or, as we saw a little earlier in Romans 9, he will say to me then, how does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Who are you a man? To answer back to God. What does molded say to us, molder? Why have you made me like this? It's a heavy topic, and yet I, I insist that we can't rightly approach the topics of election and predestination until we understand 
the, the massive claims of control God makes over all things. Only in the universe that is where God rules can we really think through these issues. And I think it's important because next week we're going to see God claim sovereign control of choosing and electing. And our knee-jerk reaction is going to be, like, well, then we're robots, then we're puppets. No, remember, that's why we started here. We can absolutely insist on God's sovereign control, and we can absolutely insist that we make real decisions that are morally culpable, that those things somehow mysteriously work together. They are compatible concepts moving in concert. Remember, when God singles out what makes him different from all the other wannabe gods, this is frequently exactly where he goes to. Consider Isaiah 48, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay, God, what sets you apart from the other would-be gods? How are you unique? There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. But that only might just simply mean omniscience. He knows what's going to happen. But notice, in the context of God taking in his scope, all of human history, beginning to end, and everything in between, as he looks at all of that, he says, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. As I look at space and time, beholding its beginning, and in beholding its end, beholding everything in between, I see that in that space and time, everything I intend to do gets done. All of my plans are fulfilled. Everything I intend to do is accomplished. It's a bold claim. And God says, that's what makes me God. That's what sets me apart from the other gods. I am sovereign. Now, one word of pastoral help you ever read the book of Habakkuk, it's just three chapters. You could probably do it in 10 minutes or so. Habakkuk faces this reality. I'm going to give you my 30-second summary of the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, Habakkuk brings a complaint to the Lord. Oh, Lord, Israel has been unfaithful. Your covenant, Israel, has, has been wicked. Do something. God's response, Habakkuk, I'm well aware of the problem, and I am even now raising up a far more wicked nation than Israel by which to judge them the Chaldeans, and I will wield them like a hammer in my hand and discipline my people. Habakkuk's second response, O Lord, far be it from you to judge us with the more wicked people. How does that work? God's response, have no fear, Habakkuk. After I have disciplined Israel with the Babylonians, I will turn around and discipline the Babylonians for daring to touch my people. To which Job's, I mean, to which, sorry, Habakkuk simply says, okay. And, and, and Habakkuk ends with a song of sorrow. He's sorrowful that he's heard that Israel will be destroyed, but ultimately trusting in God. And that's okay. We don't need to fully understand this. I, I don't have some chart that works out how all this fits together. I'm simply saying the Bible again and again and again says this is so. And so I think it's good for us to hear Habakkuk's closing verses in his book. And much to Pastor Daniel's annoyance, I've, I've lopped off the, the, the postscript for the song. That's why it just says to 19B. There. Uh, you can talk to him about his THM thesis some other time. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. 
And I might add, though God says things that are hard, hard to hear, takes credit for things that I never thought he took credit for, and I don't understand. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Not understanding, being challenged, that's a fine place to be. Trust God through this. We're, we got three more weeks. If your head's spinning, that's, that's cool. If your head's spinning for a month, that's fine too. I'd encourage you. If you've got questions, stick around. We'll be dealing with the ABF. We record the ABF, so if you go to a different ABF, you're not able to stay. But I've got a lot of extra material. Most of the work I had doing in preparing this message was leaving things out. It may seem like we looked at a lot of text. We, we just looked at a narrow selection of passages. So, so bear with me, stick with me for the next three weeks, ask your questions, and, and I trust that God will give us insight and understanding. But right now, let's just close in prayer to the God who's sovereign, the God who rules, the God who is, and that we would receive him and come to know him as he reveals himself and not as we are comfortable with thinking about him. Lord God, you are sovereign. You rule this world in heaven on earth, under the earth, and your will is done. Oh, Lord God, stretch and give the increase in our faith. Lord, you are not as we would think you are on our own. Your ways truly are above our ways. Your thoughts above our thoughts. Lord, help us to receive what you have revealed about yourself and not to look away. And give us eyes of faith that we can chew and work through these things. You've told them to us for a reason, that we might know you better. So increase our faith, increase our knowledge of you. Become big in our eyes. We might behold your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace.